The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. I remember when I fell in love with philosophy and religious studies. It wasn't classes that talked about all those fancy words like epistemology and teleology that I would come to love later. It was freshman year, spring quarter, this bearded professor who taught a class on the good life. The question, what is the good life? And at that point, I think I was sure that there was one answer and that we would find it in that class. And then I would have my roadmap and my compass. And at 19 years of age, that was incredibly efficient and a very good use of one class, one semester. But all these years later, what I really think is that that question keeps morphing and you and I, all of us, are in the ongoing class of asking and answering this question. Richard Rohr, the Franciscan priest who's writing, we've been reading from this morning. He's the founder of the Center for Action and Contemplation in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In this book, Falling Upward, he talks about what he thinks are the spiritual pieces of work that you and I need to do in both halves of our life. And it seemed worthwhile for us to reflect on our own life and maybe what that spiritual work might be and where we might be in it as we step into this year of life together. Richard Rohr, you should know, as you probably could discern in that reading, thinks that there is a true self in each of us, put there, stamped into us before we were born, and it's our job to discover, rediscover it from that amnesia he wrote about. It begins to be then the work, particularly of the first half of life, to figure out some basic components of what all that is that is us. Establishing who we are, cultivating key relationships, finding some security in the world, establishing an identity. How many of us remember trying on some different versions of ourselves for size as we figured out which one fit? I'm sure we all know people, maybe it was us occasionally, who put forward a new or tweaked version of who we thought we wanted to be when we started a new school or moved to a new city or started a new job. I have a cousin who in eighth grade, after a very boring, highly introverted eighth grade year, decided that she would start high school acting as if she were a social butterfly, the kind she had seen on TV shows. And she had a great ninth grade year. So she found some identity over time that melded those two pieces of who she could be in the world to one that felt like it fit. And I imagine we've all had versions of this leaning into different scripts we think we might enjoy as our own. 
Andy Stanley, who's a non-denominational Christian megachurch leader, said in a podcast I was listening to over the summer that he thinks that in our 20s, most of us are trying to prove something to ourselves. And in our 30s, we are trying to prove something to other people. That can be part of the work too, the proving of things, right? The achievements that we take on because they confirm who or what we want to think about ourselves or reveal what we're capable of. All the things that we do to confirm to ourselves and others that we are smart, capable, desirable, worldly, fun, whatever it is we desperately want to be true or fear is not. And maybe too, as Rohr says, we are all trying to find what the Greek philosopher Archimedes called a lever and a place to stand so that we can move the world just a little bit. And he adds, the world would be much worse off if we did not do this first and important task. There's so much to learn in the first half of life, and all of it that we can only learn by stepping into it. The dating that we do to figure out who we want to be in relationships and who we want to be in relationship with. The internships and jobs we do to see if we feel useful and happy, a calling in a work, or if it just suits us as something to take up that many hours in our week. And all of it, all of it's about the development of skills and abilities, confidence and knowledge that confirms to us and others who we think we are. It is, as Rohr says, about discovering the I, the one deep down, the one who is supposed to write the story of this life, and some clues about what that script might be. So at this point, I just want to take a moment for an aside, a footnote about this talk of the two halves of life and the generalizing even about what we do in our 20s and what we might do in our 30s. To name that all of it can be distractingly generalizing and too simplistic. And just to name that out loud, Rohr says, and I agree, that the stages of our lives, our spiritual and personal work, is not entirely chronological, not in the way that a word like halves of life implies, or the way Andy Stanley talks about it. We all have met folks who spend most of life on the first half of life obsessions, right? <laughs> who can never have enough levers in their hand, enough accomplishments to show the world and themselves that they are worthy who never figure out how to be in genuine relationships, reciprocal and loving. And all of us, perhaps, will get stuck occasionally in one piece of this work for longer than we'd like. 
And similarly, there are other people who it seems just get the second half of life work super young. I think we often, I think the term old souls is what we mean when we sometimes use that phrase. So there's huge fluidity in this conversation. And we take all the generalizations for just guideposts. And additionally, it's worth noting that none of us can skip the lessons in any part of life. As Adrian Marie Brown, who's a healer and an activist, wrote when she was writing about leaders whose lives she looks up, up to in her own work, she writes, it reminds me that they all seem to have this solid core of truth within themselves that cannot be shaken by external pressures. Those truths resonate in me when I read or hear about them, even without the context of the whole spiritual journey of that person. But I know that to truly understand, to truly be able to transform myself and develop that unflappable core, I cannot live vicariously through their spiritual lessons. I have to walk my own path. The tasks of the first half of life become this foundation. And we can't move forward without being solidly on them, not well. The friends, the clarity about boundaries, the resilience we learn from failing and struggling, the truths we own firsthand and so unshakably so, the community and the loved ones we gather around us, we will need it all in the journey. So we work on all of these tasks in the first half of life, approximately. And then at some point, many of us start to pivot we might be stuck in some parts of what Bill Plotkin calls our survival dance, but then at some point we find ourselves doing something that looks a little more like what he calls a sacred dance. Sometimes that happens, that pivot in an aha moment where a crystallization happens. Sometimes, often actually, it can happen around a significant loss or setback that reorients us. But I've also seen it happen after moments of great achievement, when someone realizes they've done everything they set out to do and it doesn't feel like enough. All those moments that awaken an aching sense that there has to be something more than what we focused on and achieved and proved and defined as valuable and remarkable as all of it is. And the shift shows up in funny ways. Maybe one day we notice we care less about what other people think, except for those whose hearts and judgments we've come to trust. And instead, we're led more and more by something inside that has its own compass and north star. 
We can be still super happy to make an impact in the world the way we were talking about even this morning, the way Judy was talking about with our lever and our place to stand in the world. But perhaps we're not trying to prove anything to anyone else anymore. Maybe we notice we don't even care if what we move the world to do has our name on it. Increasingly, all we find that matters is that the world is changed for the better in ways that matter to us. The tasks for the first half of life become the foundation and then we step forward into this other work or way of working in the world. It's interesting how that proving drive is powerful, like a race car engine with this amazing horsepower, I think, and it is heady to be moved through the world by it if you ever have been. So I think it can be disorienting at first not to have that driving the show, but it does open these questions of what next wide open, the sense of what you want to do with your one wild and precious life, as poet Mary Oliver calls it. It's the same question, but the answers start to look different and feel different. When you're young, Richard Rohr writes, you define yourself by differentiating yourself from others, and now you look for the things we all share in common. You find happiness in a likeness, which has become much more obvious to you now. And you don't need to dwell in the differences between people or exaggerate the problems. Maybe you create a lot less drama. We start, we start, he says, and I think he's right, to hold our opinions a little more lightly and a little less absolutely. Having seen that the world is so varied and big and complicated that very little is actually unambiguous and absolute, and moreover that we're never going to get anywhere with an instinct to dominate or persuade, but that conflict is resolved more in a spirit of deep listening and empathy and a modeling of a deeper peace that invites people to trust and to move together through hard places. Second half of lifers have often learned to do what they think is right, but release on the consequences because we've learned we can't control those. And despite all the world's deep brokenness, that tragic sense of life we talked about earlier, we do come to know the bounty we have received. And this all more awakening of gratitude that at a certain point can only be expressed in a desire to give back. It's what Eric Erickson called the generative stage in life or the generative person. Lives that start to take from their own abundance, wisdom, whatever they can 
and try to plow it back generously into the world, handing off what we couldn't finish, what we loved, blessings before we go. I wonder where all of you see yourself in this broad sketch. Which work, as you listened, you found that you think, ah, oh, yeah, I'm about that work right now. Are you asking what your gifts are, who you want to be in relationship, who you leave out of your circle of acceptance and how you can do work to make your heart bigger, how you give back, how you prepare yourself to let go. It's so important to know our questions so we can live our questions, as the poet Rainier, Rainier Marie Rilke said in his letter to the young poet. Rohr thinks, by the way, a little plug, that community is a big help in all of this. It's why one of the first half-of-life tasks is to find your community. Rarely does the hero in the hero's journey go it alone, get there by themselves. Communities keep us accountable and cheer us along the way. And we come to them not as passive spectators, but as treasure hunters, like we talked about this morning partners committing to be awake together. What is the good life? Oh, that it would have been answered in a semester class that met twice a week for an hour each time. Oh, that bearded professor must have been laughing up his sleeve to see us arrive, sure that we would walk away with a paper and an answer at the end. But here we are in the master class of it all together. So blessings to everyone in the tasks that you think are yours right now those you're supposed to attend to, and blessings living into the questions that are alive for you right now. And blessings to us all as we support one another in this journey out to see, to face mystery, which is a piece of this journey, and to know our deeper selves and the script that is ours to write and to bless the world as we write it. Amen. It is said that St. Francis of Assisi said on his deathbed, I have done what is mine to do, now you do yours. Then there were my dad's words on his deathbed, a couple days before he died. The hot water heater had broken and mom's kitchen floor was being flooded. I went to his bedside urgently asking him, what should I do? He was the one who usually fixed everything. 
He looked at me and calmly said, well, I guess you'll have to fix it. It was at that moment that I realized he would no longer be here to do such things. The messages from St. Francis and my father were clear. There comes a time when we have to take responsibility to fix things and to care about and care for one another. Whether it be broken water heaters or unjust policies, assuring people have their basic needs met, or working for world peace. Caring about people and being of service, doing what one can to help, was and still is a foundational culture in my family. I grew up being formed by biblical parables of the Good Samaritan, Jesus feeding 5,000 in one sitting, and messages such as, love one another as I have loved you. When Vanessa asked me what matters for me in life and how has that changed over time, I realized that those foundational mandates and messages have remained constant, though contexts have continually changed. In my youth and childhood, it was doing things like collecting money in the rice bowl during Lent to be sent to feed the hungry throughout the world. It was helping to serve pancakes at the Lions Club breakfast that provided funds for them to do their charity work. It was taking turns to stay overnight with my grandmother after my grandfather died so she wouldn't have to be alone. When I look at these formative years, I realize that inherent in them was it wasn't just me, but rather I was one of a group of people, a community of people, church, town, neighbors, my family, who were working together to make a difference for someone, somewhere, somehow, both locally and in faraway places. There were people noticing needs and taking responsibility to make them known and to gather others to care about and to respond. I also realize that the constancy throughout each time and place is that it ultimately was and is about the love of others and a desire that all may have what they need. Not only having their basic human needs met, like housing, food, and health care, but also companionship and community and pathways to realize their potential. That early formation in my church and family is still firm, but what has changed is a recognition of my personal and our collective responsibility to notice what is happening to our earth and to people, to care about what is happening locally and worldwide, and to take responsibility.
to initiate actions and not just wait for someone else to do it, considering my own participation or my own help optional. Whether working for peace in our world and addressing the issues that are impoverishing masses of people and irreparably damaging our earth, or fixing broken water heaters. I am not off the hook. No matter how complicated or hopeless it feels, my care and my participation, together with others, does make a difference. So along with the words of St. Francis as he tells us that he has done what is his to do, and now we must do ours, or my dad saying, well, I guess you'll have to fix it. I add the quote from Rilke that Kay Jorgensen and I printed in our very first brochure, laying the foundation for our work. For one human being to love another, that is the most difficult of all our tasks, the ultimate the last test and proof, the work for which all other work is but preparation, isn't to love one another a wonderful task? Mm -hmm.